Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Yishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Judea to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are. Shalom and welcome to the Land of Israel Network, and we have a very special and good show for you today. Uh, first, we're going to start with Rabbi Mike Foyer, uh, who's going to talk to us about the blasphemer and uh, what we can learn from the story of the blasphemer. Yes, there's a specific story in the Bible about the blasphemer in the Torah, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about also Pesach Sheni, a very special holiday. That's happening right now. I love this holiday, and you'll find out why. So that's really important. And then afterwards, something unusual, I'm going to be lifting a podcast that's made by a Texas congressman whose name is Dan Crenshaw. He interviewed a good friend of mine, Zev Ornstein from the City of David, and I thought it was a masterful interview, and I thought the style itself was was valuable for you to hear it as is. So stay tuned for that as well. It is a beautiful day in Judea, blue skies, uh, and uh, there was some rain a few, for a few days, and now that's over, and we are praying to pass out of corona and back into life. Reigniting life, re revivifying life is not an easy thing, and I'm sure that some of you out there are having a, a hard time either having the opportunity to revivify or actually revivifying, revivification, right? Uh, it's not an easy thing. When when you go to hibernation, it's not easy to come out, just like it's not easy to get up in the morning always. Uh, but we pray to Hashem to give us strength uh, to come out of this thing. So without further ado, here is uh, Rabbi Mike Foyer for the first segment of this week's show. Oh yeah, you know what? Don't forget, uh, if you like this segment, write me an email, yishai at thelandofisrael.com. Ask any questions or yishai at yishaifleischer.com. Check out my, check out my site and enjoy uh, this Torah part of the show. Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Yishai Fleischer Show and to the live stream on my Facebook page as well. What an honor and pleasure it is to be with you uh, broadcasting from the land of Israel. And also this podcast is broadcast on the Land of Israel Network. So shalom and welcome to all of you wherever you are. And thank you so much for joining me. And I'm also joined by Rabbi Mike Foy. Oh, oh no, what did I <laughs> Oh. Rabbi Mike, there you are. How are you, Rabbi Mike? That was a very strange experience. I'm great. Right. Yeah, thank you. Well, we're I still was there learning in the, in the nether world for just one moment. That's right. Well, we're still learning. We're still learning how to use this technology exactly, perfectly, properly. Um, and uh, as we start the show today, Rabbi Mike, usually you and I meet at the Pardis Institute, uh, but today we're meeting uh, via Streamyard on Facebook. And as I said last week, uh, like the Baal Shem Tov says, wherever. Your mind is that's where you are. So we are together, even though we're physically separated. Uh, we are mentally together for the next 45 minutes uh, to talk about the Torah portion and some uh, world events as well. Um, and I want to dedicate today's show to a very special man uh, who passed away early this morning. And he was uh, my Rosh Hashiva and your neighbor. Uh, his name is Rabbi Nachum Rabinovich. Rabbi and Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Nachum Rabinovich, Rabinovich. I think also a fair word is Hagaon. He was really uh, not a, not just a righteous man. He was certainly righteous, but that wasn't what he was famous for. Uh, his fame is for uh, being one of the great scholars of our time. Yes, uh, he was a he was a scholar of Maimonidean proportion, specifically about Maimonides. <laughs> Okay, he was uh, he was a famous exegete, an explainer of uh, the Rambam. It actually published a, a a large set of books on Maimonides, on the Rambam's explanation, uh, his Codex of Laws, Codex of Laws, 
called the Yad Chazaka. Uh, that's the that's the Rambam's book. And he his book is called the Yad Pshuta, the yeah. the simple explanation of uh, of the Rambam. And um, he passed away this morning. He was my Rosh Hashiva. I'll just tell a little story about him. Uh, I had a few incidences with him, including, by the way, one year uh, being at his uh, seder. Really, I was at his seder. I was, wow. I was, I was at his seder many years ago. It was just me and his son. Like it was a small seder, and I was one of the folks. Um, I didn't go home to America for the seder, and I stayed with right. him. Uh, but another story is that one time I had uh, recently, by the way, this thing broke. I had this little tiny thinking man, you know, made out of stone, mm -hmm. those little thinking man statues, yeah. but it had no face, right? It had no face. It was just a completely, it was made out of soapstone. Yeah. Okay. And very, very smooth. Anyway, one time in, in yeshiva, I had this little thinking man at my desk because he gave uh -oh. me inspiration to be thinking like, and so, so Suddenly, I came back to my desk, and the thinking man made his way to behind my books. <laughs> okay. So I, I, you know, he's he was wily, so I, I pulled him back out of there and put him in front of the books. And then uh, uh, a few hours later, he made his way back behind the books. Well, I performed a sting operation to see what would happen. I put him in front of the books again. I and went over some distance. <laughs> So when I, I and I was watching carefully, right? I was look. I I I made myself hide. I was watching carefully, and another yeshiva student uh, came to uh, to my desk and moved this thinking man behind the other books. I caught him red-handed. I apprehended the culprit, and I said to him, "What in the name of the good God are you doing?" And he said to me with uh, with great emotion, he yelled at me saying. You are causing everybody to sin by putting this idolatry in front of us. And when we bow down during Modim, during the, the, the prayers that we perform here, we all bow down to your little silly God. <laughs> That's a rather intense response. He went, he went, he completely went, you know, he completely went ballistic on me. Because he voted our nerve. Yeah, That's but he was the nerve. Yeah, but he was very vociferous about it. He was very yeah. loud and, and quite agitated. I guess I said to him, uh, right, right, because he could have, right, he, he had that in him, and he could have also said to him, yeah, he could have smashed it. It, it could have been a little piece. He was an iconoclast. He was, <laughs> he was an iconoblast. That's what it would have been. Yeah. So anyway, so I said to him, you know, you're crazy. Uh, this is this ain't no Vodazora. This is nothing. So he says, uh, he says, yes, it is. And we turn to another guy. I'm like, isn't this guy crazy? And the other guy's like, I don't know, man. Maybe it is bad what you're doing. Is this anyway. <laughs> So I marched, I took, I took this little statue and I marched up to Rabbi Nachum Rabinovich who passed away today. I marched up there and now he was, he was about a foot and a half taller than me. Okay. Yeah. Or at least yeah. that's what it seemed to me. He was a large, no, 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 no. You're correct. He He's a, a large and robust guy, like yeah. big. And a booming voice when he wanted he to. Yeah, a booming voice. Uh, but he also had a, a gentle kind of feeling to him. But it's still, sweet. I walked right up to him, and I didn't say one word. This is the funny thing, Rabbi Mike. I didn't say a word. I just handed him this little statue. Now, his mm -hmm. I never forget. I was I was 17. I never forget his giant hand holding this little statue, and it looked like a little plaything. And he just he kind of touched it. And he was looking at it. He was holding it, rubbing it, and he goes to me, no. 
<laughs> that's it. That's it. That was the, that was the, that. Was, there were no words. I passed this thing up to him, and he goes, "No." I go, "This other yeshiva guy keeps taking my uh, my my little statue here and and putting it behind the books, and he says that I'm causing everybody to sin with the Savodazara. So he goes, he rubs it again on the face, which no face, you know, just the. He goes, "Tell your friend that he doesn't know halacha." Ooh. He goes, he goes. You see this thing? It has no. It has no face. Yeah, yeah. It has no face. It's just a. It's a rock, for all <laughs> intents and purposes. It's nothing, and therefore it is certainly no uh, no idolatry here. You could put it at your desk. That was it. Uh, what later happened with the young man is, is a different part of the story because he That's was still right. feeling. He was still feeling. Later, this young guy became a very passionate Breslov chassid. Interestingly enough, not a surprise. Right, he was he, he was a very he was a heated young man, and I, and I and I say that in uh, it with all compliments. Mm. I don't I don't I don't say that in any. Uh, I say he was really he a driven. Yeah. Right, he was he was very driven to Judaism, and he took it maybe another another step. But anyway, today Rabbi Nachum Rabinovich passed away. You want to say anything about him? Yeah, I didn't have such a personal relationship with him, although he was extremely available to the neighborhood. I mean, I have gone to his house. I remember the first time I went to ask him a shadow to ask him a question on on Shabbat. Uh, I I knocked. I hear come in. He's just sitting there in his living room with his wife. I'm like, yeah, come in, have a cup of tea. Good question: Who are you? You live in the neighborhood. Just 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 a sweetness. And an availability, which I think that everyone in the neighborhood felt. But what I would say is that, um, in addition to his greatness in halacha, he should be remembered as someone who put his Torah into action in the world in every possible way. I mean, he built this neighborhood. He was the driving force to build this entire neighborhood, which is not a small merit to have done such a thing. He was was a driving force behind the, what's called the Giur Kehalacha movement now in Israel of, of trying to open a new avenue for um, immigrants to our country who are struggling with questions of their Jewish status and a way in which they can actually be sort of brought into the national fold. Um, and last but certainly not least, I'll never forget he was um, he was arrested and interrogated in the aftermath of the Rabin assassination, um, be, uh, because he had a very outspoken views on the sanctity and the undivided nature of the land of Israel. Was very opposed to the Oslo process, um, and I moved to the neighborhood well after that. But what I didn't realize is he had, he he had been arrested because someone had recorded one of his shiurim, and then it had been circulated, and you know the security forces brought him in. So from that point on, he only spoke about politics apparently on Shabbat. So I used to daven in the yeshiva. So I will never forget in the lead up to the disengagement, him blasting away. He starts off very quietly. Like he said, it's so sweet, quiet, but he'd get heated up and suddenly you'd see his full stature. And he's just telling his students like what it is to be a Jewish soldier in the land of Israel and how in the same way that if your commanding officer told you to eat pork, you would refuse that you may not uproot your fellow Jews from the land. And, and right. listening to this was a, was an extremely moving experience. So leaving aside the, the politics and, you know, maybe there are people there who think that's wrong. and It's not my point. My point is to see a man for whom Torah is significant insofar as it's lived and made real in the world. That's in right. every aspect of his life. That's right. And you're right that he built up uh, a portion of Eretz Yisrael. Uh, and and uh, what, 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 what was very uh, apparent about him was that he was also what we, he was previous, which was like a math professor. Yes. 
So, and you, you, if you know math professors, he was a math professor. And so, so I just, I just don't want people like the way you just described him as a person who had a, had strong political feelings. When you met him, you didn't feel that way. You felt that you were dealing with a scholarly type person. Oh, unbelievable. Um, yeah. But, right. But, but like, but like who really cared about people. I mean, he, yeah. I, I also remember him like, like hammering home to our, to, to, to my wife and I at one point, how, that that the only thing you should be machmir on is pikuach nefesh. We had some questions to him about uh, health and, and and pregnancy, etc. And and it was such an important thing to him that you just you, the the stricture when it comes to life and people's emotional and 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 physical safety. It was an unbelievable and it's uh, the impression that he has made in the world in general, but on this neighborhood in particular, is something which will last well beyond this lifetime. Yeah. Um, I just want to say hi to Lou Weiss, a good friend of mine from Modine, who says uh, our broadcast is looking and sounding great. Uh, Raja uh, Gudapati, um, I'm guessing somewhere from uh, from India or, or that area, uh, I'm guessing. Uh, hello to you. He says, hi, sir. And I say, hello, sir, to you back. And uh, C. Kimberly is with us as well. and says, may Hashem bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you and give you his shalom. Bless Amen. Israel. <laughs> Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And it's so so beautiful this this ability to to uh, c- connect to people around the world. And I'm really going to try to be using this platform more. But I still can't get some coffee. That's Sorry. right. But but I feel it. But I feel the coffee that you're drinking. I feel like we're we're together. If you, if you could feel that, you'd be a little bit more jumpy. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Speaking of jumpy, let's jump to the next topic, and that is that uh, this Thursday night. We are celebrating one of the uh, one of one of what I think is one of the most beautiful holidays, uh, a semi-holiday, if you will, uh, which is called P two, or Second Pesach, Pesach Sheni. It's also Y two K, which is no, no, it's not Y two K. It's P two, right? It's P two. If you're in Kiridar, but then it would be P two K four. But in any case. Uh, I'm just looking right now at the text of uh, the Torah, not this week's Torah portion, but rather uh, in a few months, the Torah portion of Baalotcha, which is chapter 9 in the book of uh, Bamidbar, which is Numbers. And basically it talks about how um, there were there was a uh, celebration of Passover in the desert, but there were a few people, there were men who were ritually unclean, because of contact with a dead person, and therefore they could not make the Passover sacrifice on that on that day. So they approached Moses and Aaron on that day. Those men said to him, we are ritually unclean uh, because of contact with a dead person. Why should we be excluded so as not to bring the offering of the Lord in its appointed time with all the children of Israel? So they so they basically turned to, to Moses and they said, listen, we're missing out on this thing. Uh, and why should we miss out? We, you know, we, we were, you know, it's part of life that sometimes you're ritually unclean. And there are some explanations in the Midrash that they had been performing a mitzvah, different different versions of what that mitzvah was, but they were dealing with a corpse. And then Moses says to them, verse 8, Moses said to them, wait, and I will hear what the Lord instructs concerning you. The Lord spoke to So Moses says, hold on, I got I to gotta download from, from God. I got to reach out to, you, you to gotta dial in. <laughs> I got to dial in. I got to plug in. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, any person who becomes unclean from contact with the dead or is this or is on a distant journey 
whether amongst you or in future generations, he shall make a Passover sacrifice for the Lord. How? In the second month, on the 14th day, in the afternoon, they shall make it. They shall eat it with unleavened cakes and bitter herbs. They should not leave over anything. And he goes through the laws. But the bottom line is that a, uh, and, and this is not just for Jews, but it's also for, it's also for, it is only for Jews, but it's also for converts. If a proselyte dwells with you and he makes a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, according to the statutes of Passover sacrifice and its ordinances, uh, one statue, okay, one statue shall, shall uh, apply to you. But the point is, is that Pesach Sheni is for Jews and certainly for converts as well, obviously. Um, but this holiday is coming right up. This like second chance holiday of Pesach, second Pesach. There, there's something very beautiful in it, in that, um, as we've spoken about before, and I quoted you actually recently in an interview, that uh, th this request shows that God is, you know, is is waiting to give more, as you, you've you've taught me many times. But what what really stands out for me right now, as you were reading it, is the fact that they 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 had a legitimate reason, and we have this um, notion in Alakha of Onus Rachmana Patre. That, that, that God basically excuses those who were under duress. They didn't have to. They didn't have to look for a second chance. And But what you see is that um, this was anything but technical. That they what they really wanted was the relationship which was available through these actions. And I think that's a lesson for us. That, that, that in all of our actions, be they in mitzvot or be they in acts of service of, of other type, that... that what, what um, you know, God wants the heart, right? He wants us to do these actions out of desire. And that's really what triggers this moment of, um, of generosity that God gives them more. Right. And I think we also learn from the second Pesach is that there's going to be, as, as you were alluding to, there's going to be more holidays. There's going to be more things. For example, if you yearn for the land of Israel, and God gives you a miracle of, of, of defeating your enemies and being, being able to announce uh, the beginnings of a third commonwealth, uh, a day of independence recognizing the beginnings of the third commonwealth, or coming up soon also as well, a day that recognizes our 1967 battle and, and uh, reacquirement of Jerusalem, a whole Jerusalem, a united Jerusalem, especially the old city, the Western Wall, and of course the Temple Mount. So you're going to create a holiday for that. So there's a kind of example for you where God says like, yeah, you got more. Uh, now, 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 celebrate it. Now, to, to, yeah. to take a un understand that it's important to market. I'm giving you more than the original, than the original stuff. I'm giving you yet other great moments to celebrate, and I want you to, to take it all the way. I mean, Yom Asbud and Yom Yerushalayim, I think, are even on a uh, almost a more grand scale because there we have historical episodes, and it's and and we're really at a time period right now where we have very important work to do because the immediacy of the experience has faded less so with 67 but certainly with 48 i mean it's a generation which sure. is which is um you know few and far between right and and while that is of course tragic it's also just the nature of time that you, there's nothing to be done about that our obligation is to extract from that moment of liberation and the sort of ecstatic rejoicing which naturally flows from it the core eternal message and to begin to shape the holiday and our celebration around that you know and and and, and that's work that it's going to take some time it's going to take some time to figure out well what is the ultimate message of yom Hatzmut? you know similar to hanukkah i mean hanukkah for the first few generations after the liberation from the greeks was probably obvious like why do we celebrate well duh you know 
But um, the fact that we continue to celebrate Hanukkah for, you know, say 1,500 more, almost 2,000, actually, yeah, 2,000 years in exile after the Maccabean kingdom was destroyed tells us that there's something fundamental and essential in it. And that, that's, a, that's a task which lies before us. What is the essential both in your Matzmut and your Mushalai? Sadly, uh, many people around the world celebrate Israel's Independence Day, but few people really celebrate Jerusalem Day outside of Jerusalem and the religious Zionist community. Uh, also, the ultra-Orthodox community celebrated as a day that commemorates the passing of, uh, of Shmuel, Samuel the prophet. But, but sadly, I think that Jerusalem Day is not really well, well known around the world. And that's something that, that really should change. Jerusalem Day is so important. And um, I want to tell you about, about an article that I read in the Times of Israel. It was a blog really recognizing something that my mother pointed out to me, which is that this is the first time that American Jewry may have felt less safe than Israeli Jewry. I'm, I'm referring to the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, American Jewry does, didn't feel good, still not feeling so good. Yeah, I mean, America is um, still in a very delicate situation right now. Right. And we're, we, we feel like we're coming out of it. I mean, next week, the malls are opening. Mm -hmm. It feels, I mean, you know, barring a second, uh, a second relapse, it feels like we're kind of at the tail end of this thing. Well, listen, uh, it's important to know, by the way, there likely will be a second wave. And what we get to do is we have to ride it, meaning, meaning this, like the flu, is likely to be part of the landscape of our biological lives for quite some time. Mm. But, but, but we managed to get a grip on it, and now we need to really, so like the same thing we do with the flu, we have to manage it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but still, still the, the point of the, comp the uh, I didn't say the right word, uh, the, 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 the tension between American Jewry and Israeli Jewry, which are the two big poles of, of Jewry around the world, sure. uh, is that the atmosphere in America is one of um, really, really being stricken pretty hard by this thing. And the Israeli one feels not like that. It feels no, like... It Right. It feels like we dodged a bullet and, and not enough has been said that Kodesh Baruch Hu has been protecting us here in the land mm -hmm. of Israel. That is the feeling. I think a lot of people feel that way without, without it being said. Just as you could feel that way. And you could say, well, our great uh, Amer Israeli president has protected us. A prime minister has, and there is his team. Well, that's God's gift as well. Yeah. Yeah. That, I don't <laughs> see a distinction between those two, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Wait, uh, uh, Miss Courier here asks, our church in America celebrate Passover and second pa Passover. We have Pentecost. Uh, how does Israel celebrate? Well, we celebrate Passover as a big holiday. Pentecost, which is Shavuot, uh, we celebrate big as well. But second Passover is more like a kind of private thing. And there are some Kabbalistic traditions and some people. We actually, in our house, we eat matzah and drink wine on, on second Passover, and I really need a heter, a leniency to get a haircut. Can I get a haircut for, for Pesach Shani? My hair is I mean, out of control. Uh, no. No, probably not. <laughs> no. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't think okay. so. I, didn't. I mean, if you're going to wait until um, Lag Lag. Yeah, uh, I mean, you, you can get your haircut on your matzah, it's not your thing. I, no, it is my thing, but I'm embarrassed to say the real reason I didn't get a haircut on, on your matzah is because my mom 
was around, and she hates it when I cut my hair short. So, I, so why is that embarrassing? That's cute with aim. Yeah, that's it. I just I just didn't want her to not feel happy. So so there I am now. I'm, the the fro is coming out. Um, okay, you're a good son. You're a good son. Uh, I try. I try. I try. I love my mother. Okay. <laughs> um, speaking of being good, we have a Torah portion filled with laws. Uh, very interesting yeah. laws. The first part it discusses the laws which pertain to priests uh, and sacrifices. And then there's a large and lengthy discussion about the holidays. The, 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 kind of, the whole Jewish calendar is basically uh, described in this Parsha. And this is really the Parsha when, when the Talmud discusses the laws of the holiday. It goes really to this, to this Torah portion a lot of times. And we also learn about the two various cycles of the um, of the holidays. We we basically have two cycles. Uh, it, it's it's you know speaking of cycles, I want to take a second here to talk about it. You know, I learned an amazing thing from Rosh Chodesh Elul until uh, until Shmini Atzeret, until the last day of Sukkot, from the beginning of Elul till the 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 last day of Sukkot, which is its own kind of holiday. There's actually 51 days. And that last day is called atzeret, mm -hmm. a stoppage. Same thing from erev Pesach, the day, the fourteenth of Nisan, of Nisan, which until is Shavuot, which is its own holiday, right? Called called uh, Chag, Pesach. Chag Pesach, as opposed to Chag Matzot. Right. Um, from there until Shavuot, which is called atzeret in Talmudic literature. Is also exactly fifty-one days. days. Yes, and these are two day, two uh, times of repentance and of uh, mm -hmm. cleansing. So there's two kind of cycles in the year, uh, a fifty-one day cycles that you kind of like every day matters, and every day in Elul matters, and then the high holidays, and then Sukkot, and then finally hit the stoppage day. So too. Uh, here again in in, uh, in the lead up to Shavuot right now, the word Pentecost means count 50. We're counting 50. Today, by the way, is the 27th day. We're, we're counting 50 until uh, until Shavuot. Uh, and and then there's going to stop it. What, what do you think is the relationship between these uh, two two kind of uh, uh, periods in the Jewish calendar of, of prayer and repentance? Uh, I mean, one of the ways I've been given to understand it is that the the cycle that begins with Elul and goes through uh, Shmini Atzeret is um, is uh, like a personal behavioral cycle. Even though there's obviously more to it than that, um, but, but there's a there's a sense that uh, what you're trying to do is what's known as tikkun amidot, right? The, the fixing your 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 personal character. Um, whereas the cycle that goes from from Pesach through Shavuot is um, about building national vessels. That, mm -hmm. that, 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 that there's a national covenant which is made on Pesach, and that is what the, the sacrifice, the Chag Pesach, is. And then it culminates in that moment of receiving the Torah, which is never an individual act. It's very important to remember that that um, the idea of receiving Torah on one's own is a, is a, is a, a false notion. Right? That's why we learn in 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 Chavruta and study pairs. It's why um, we have a communal set of law. It's not that there's no individual place. It's not my point. It's that that when God sort of opens up the channel for us to receive, it's a collective receiving. So that's, that's one of the ways I've been given to understand. And and, and, and that's the the holidays that we're that we're 
that we're celebrating during this period. These are national holidays. Yeah, it's not a surprise to me that that um, Yom Atzmaut and Yom Zikaron and uh, and Yom Yerushalayim have fallen out specifically in the in the Sefer Omer, both because of that and also because it's a time of process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a time. So of, yeah. let me let me just let me just kind of uh, spit it back for people again. So the the fifty one day cycle that is towards the high holidays is really about personal. Um, fixing the personal flat tire, yeah. the uh, yeah. uh, rectification, right? Yeah, pretty, yeah, right. Getting working on yourself, working on your own character and your relationship with God, and that's like a like, a, like you got to fix that personally. And then, and then this period, which starts with uh, Chag Pesach, which is the fourteenth day of Nisan, goes all the way till Shavuot. Also, another stoppage, another fifty-one days. That is a national rectification. Somebody else I heard say that this is Kenegia, this is related to the words Anashem Hoshiana, Anashem Atslichana, Hashem please save us or me, and then Hashem please uh, make us successful. Success, right. Right, but the word na, nun aleph, is 51, 51. in Gematria. Uh, by the way, I'm getting a high from uh, both uh, Luis. Luis Gilbert, <laughs> I have a problem with that. I don't always know how to pronounce uh, th- that uh, uh, that name properly. Although I had a very a great uh, Italian nanny. Her name was Luisa. God bless her. And also Shannon says Shalom from Aurora, Aurora, Missouri, in the United States of America, with three smiling faces. God bless you. She's, she's up early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a. That's right. I wanted to broadcast a little bit later, but but you couldn't do it. So okay. okay. Listen, I I want to get. So so there's the there's the holiday cycle, mm-hmm. and then I want to get to something which I think is very pertinent for a lot of people, which is the story of the blasphemer. The blasphemer. The blasphemer. I knew where you were going. I that's right. The blasphemer, uh, and the blasphemer is. Um, um, is at the end of this Torah portion where basically you have a story of, of two. Um, let me let's well let's read it, shall we? Let's read it. Yeah, uh, this is in the Torah portion of Emor. It's um, chapter twenty four. Chapter twenty four really starts very beautifully with uh, take pure olive oil crushed for lighting to kindle the lamps continually, and it's talking about how the oil that is going to be used for the menorah has to be really from the first squash. Squish drop of the olive. The olive has kind of levels of squishing, and the first squish that's is the. Term. That's right. You know, the the first olive squish is the virgin olive oil, uh, and then later on you could even squish the pit, and and a lot of oil comes out of that. But that is not as as clean lighting. By the way, if you don't know the difference between olive oil, and and if you light Shabbos candles, we light Shabbat candles with. Uh, food grade olive oil from the land of Israel, and it's just it's a totally different kind of light it's than if you light clean. it. Yeah, it's it's clean, clean and it doesn't leave any of that soot or residue on the ceiling or anything like that. So that's really good. The other the next, the Torah portion talks about the twelve loaves of the showbread. The shtem shtem asrechalot shne esronim yechala echat. So uh, you got to take uh, fine flour. Also, again here. Best flour, fine flour, very well chopped. Make it into 12 loaves. Uh, and then you place them into two stacks, six in each stack upon the pure table before the Lord. So we're, we're really finishing up the more, the very personal stuff of the um, uh, of, of the tabernacle la- later at the temple. It's kind of very pure, mm. very, um, very kind of like, wow, what a, what a wholesome, right? 
it's it's related to like uh you know whole foods it's like whole wheat whole olive oil whole oh, white this is white flour what do you, it's not white flour it is. what do you think uh what do you think heavily sifted flour is uh, bleached i thought no, I no, thought no. That they bleach out the. They're, 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 okay, but it's not bleached white flour, but it's sifted. It's sifted. You sift out all of the uh-huh. the, the chaff and the wheat germ, etc. Uh-huh. It looks because it looks really good. It makes these fluffy loaves. By the way, I just want to tell you on a, on a personal thing between me and you. My wife Malka bought some, um, um, like she went to a good bread uh, bakery and she brought home bread, uh-huh. and I was like, I ate it. I'm like, now this is the staff of life. <laughs> this is food. A lot of the other bread you eat is like the stuff that you put scoop other stuff onto. Yeah, so that yeah, it, yeah. It was a, it's like more like a delivery uh, a vehicle. It's a vehicle. delivery vehicle, right? Yeah. This I was like, now now I get it. This is bread. Yeah, it's good okay. stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so everything is pretty wholesome and beautiful, but then, and it's it's you know the trouble in paradise, right? There's trouble in paradise, right? Good. Now the son of an Israelite woman, and he was the son of an Egyptian man, went out amongst the children of Israel, and they quarreled in the camp. The son of an Israelite woman and an Israelite man. Rashi says, where did he go out from? Rabbi Levi says he went out of this world. He forfeited his share in the world to come. So this this guy uh, came out. Yeah, He blew it. Wait, you know what? Maybe I'll get back to this in a second uh, to explain this, but what happens is that these two guys are fighting, including this guy who's, you know, in the Jewish people, but kind of half and half because the Torah says his mother was Jewish, but his father was for, is an Egyptian. Um, and what happens is that the son of the Israelite woman pronounces the divine name and cursed. And everybody's like, oh, my God. <laughs> Bad news, man. I was eating a piece of halibut. <laughs> <laughs> people, people don't appreciate the reference. Yeah. Gotta, gotta see it. Okay. If you ever see the life of Brian, it's you'll know what I'm talking about. They they do a great pun on this whole thing. And, I'm not saying that it, you must go see it. Right. I'm I am not saying you must go see it. I don't know if that's right for me to 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 recommend it, but let's put it this way. It is in these days of quarantine and Netflix. That's if, right. Go if, life if of anyway, Brian. If you're anyway right. out there, go see it. <laughs> it's true. It'll, it's true. There's a lot of good humor there. In any case, and the son of the Israeli woman pronounced the name, the, the, the divine name, and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shilomit, the, the daughter of Debri from the tribe of Dan. So so the, the, the whole deal here is, is that this, this there was a fight between two people, and somebody like whipped out the name of God, which you're not supposed to say, and cursed as well. Yes. I don't understand exactly what happened there. Did he did he did he curse the name of God or did he curse using the name of God? What do you think happened there? It's a machloket actually in, in even in the shot of the text. Right? It sounds like um that he says it explicitly. That's what Vikov is, but then it says Vayikalel, it seems like be a, it would be a separate statement, but not everybody agrees on that. And ultimately, when you look at the uh, sort of halachic ramifications, this is not the source of the halachic boundary of not cursing with the name of God that appears elsewhere, but it seems that you have to do both. Right. Um, now, here, here, here's, here's two very amazing things. Check this out. 
One is that this 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 guy that cursed, he was according to Medrash. The Bible does not say that mamash. It doesn't say that explicitly, but it is our tradition that he was the son of the Egyptian that Moses killed. Yep. Remember that story about Moses in the beginning. He sees a taskmaster beating another Jew and he kills him. Now, what's interesting is the Medrash and the Kabbalah say that how did Moses kill this Egyptian? He killed them with the, the word, of the name of God. So he said the name of God, and that killed Aww. this guy's father. And now this this son uses maybe that very same name to try to curse another Jew, or and dies, and dies for it, and dies for it. What do you, what do you make of that? Uh, I mean, we could go in a lot of directions here, but. Um, one of the things it brings up for me is, is that I think that oftentimes there's a theme in our lives, right? The, the, and and the, that theme can be a creative or a destructive force. You know, the, the, the name of God is, um, is a powerful creative force, right? We speak about in many ways in the mystic tradition how that that's a bit of the architecture of the world. But but you know the the problem is is that if you build the world wrong, then then sort of people get squashed. Mm -hmm. So 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 th there's there's some story I feel like that could, we could trace through here with a little bit of more work. I mean um, about how we can, when Moshe pronounces this in the name of God, he's looking at the world and seeing the way it ought to be, and the fact that it's not reflective of that and pronouncing the name of God, so to speak, sets it back on its foundation. And this guy's father got squashed. Right. The, this person's trying to take control. He's not speaking the name of God to make things right. He's feeling hurt for whatever the backstory is here. And the Midrash gives us a couple options, but he's feeling hurt and he wants to take control because he has a judgment that the world right now doesn't appear the way it ought to be. And he tries to use the name of God as a tool to make the world reflect his will. And in that he pays with mm -hmm. his life. Right. You know, the, the, the difference is that sure, that, sure, in, sure. In the end of the day, that, that it's an attempt to make the world look as one believes it ought to be. Question is, is that for the sake of God or for one's own sake? You remember that back in the story of uh, of Egypt, that uh, that Moses looks this way and that way, right? Before he strikes down the Egyptian, it's and one of the explanations is, what's that? It says, "Be'erash ain ish." Right. And what's the point there? Uh, one of the explanations is that he saw throughout his whole generations, and he saw that there wasn't going to come anything good out of this, uh, out of this Egyptian, and he struck him down. Mm -hmm. And kind of here comes the um, the Torah and tells us, well, indeed, down the line he uh, gave birth, to, or beforehand he he, he uh, you know uh, sired a, yeah sired a a son who would indeed use that name the wrong way wouldn't and, and kind of you know like reverberated through the ages but it actually ended up killing him right he used that name to kill him if you think yeah. about it like the, when, when he said the name but there's another there's another other, uh, there's another way to view this whole story yeah and that is uh one with a little bit more judgment on the jewish people because it turns out that this guy uh, according to one version was looking where to pitch his tent yeah. and he thought since he was from the tribe of dan then he should he should pitch his name his tent in Don because his mother was Don right and and he thought well maybe I belong to this tribe my my father is not of the people anyway he didn't find a place to pitch his tent everybody said you know you're not from here right and that lack of acceptance 
<laughs> that lack of acceptance caused him to to be frustrated. Uh, to, to, to feel problem. outside. It's an ongoing problem, right? It's one of the challenges. An, I, I would say an ongoing te- an ongoing tension. Really, it's a tension. You know, exact, exact. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe the Torah is there to tell you in the end that he didn't really belong. Oh, well, that wasn't what I was identifying as the problem, actually. Okay. I mean, okay. I think that that's that's a truth, and I hear what you're saying is that there's a reality that the boundaries of the Torah are the boundaries of the Torah. The problem I see is the the, the failure in communication, right? Because I don't I don't believe that that um, this type of curse, you know, like Rav Cook used to say that the source of heresy is never thoughts. It's the immoral behavior of religious people. Meaning it, it, it wasn't the essential fact that that the tribal relationship is established with the father. That's just a fact of the Torah. It's the fact that when he came to try to set his tent up there, they were like, Hugh, what are you doing here? Get out of here. You know, there was there, there's a lack of empathy. And this is something right. I've seen a lot in, uh, in my career as a teacher and as a, as a rabbi is that um, there is a danger of coldness and even harshness when one feels that they have the law in their hands. And, and there has to be a deep empathy for the challenge which law poses for individual life. I mean, one it does, that doesn't have to necessarily mean that one compromises. It's not my point. My point is there still has to be an empathy for human experience, yeah. especially in the places where where the law is... is um, Cutting across the grain of someone's life, right. as in this. You know what? Uh, I think I think um, this is also a very good point to talk about the culture that we are seeing with the distance that we have from one another on the internet, and people feel a willingness to just throw every barb and harshness at one another. So there's a very harsh internet culture on Twitter and other places where you can really just malign people very harshly. Maybe I've been guilty of that myself. I try not to be very, very harsh, and I certainly don't go ad hominem or try not to go ad hominem, but but we all fall f- into it. And the story is maybe here with the cursor one is, you know, um, accept people a little bit more, even if they don't belong or if you're not sure that they're part of your tribe. Uh, there are mimetic tribes today. Maybe allow the other meme person, the other meme believer, to give them a little bit more empathy. Uh, and on the other hand, or, or related to that is, watch watch the cursing. God yeah. has given us the power of speech, which is one of the differences between us and all the other creatures in this world. It is a gift. It makes us human. And we have to really honor that that great gift and treat this as a very holy vessel, the mouth and the tongue. And, and beyond a gift, it's a powerful tool. And as is true with all powerful tools, you can build or destroy and uh, and uh, what I hear you saying is people need to appreciate that that the destructive capacity is very real, and I think that one of the problems with the uh, sort of internet culture you're identifying is that is that we're not looking each other in the face, and therefore we feel free to say things that we wouldn't do otherwise if we actually not only had to sort of had the courage to look in the face but to see the pain, right? When right. when one's words land, and that's I think uh, it should be words of caution for us. Amen. So let's let's really fix our speech a little bit during this time of national fixing and speaking good about the Jewish people, speaking good about Israel. Speaking of speaking good, I'm finishing up here. I just want to say first thing, the way to pronounce Louise's name is Louise. She writes to me, Louise with a smiley face. Fran from Colorado says hello. We've got a lot of uh, emojis and smiley faces from Sieberhagen, our friend uh, out there somewhere. 
Uh, and our friend Raja says, I love Israel. I came to the country for two times in 2016 and 2018. My good friend, Joshua Younger, who I haven't heard from in a while uh, and has made Aliyah. I wonder how he's doing. He says, Shalom, Ishai. And I say, Josh, how you doing? Great to hear from you. I can't wait to see you. Uh, our friend Kimberly says, the, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Laughter does the body good, like good medicine. You both have a beautiful display, uh, and uh, we're giving her a, a sense of light. And other good people are saying, uh, hi, uh, Rabbi Mike Foyer uh, can be found at his website, which is uh, jewishstory.co, uh, and he can find him on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Rav Mike. Uh, remember, folks, yesterday was Giving Tuesday, and today is We Welcome Giving Wednesdays, okay? <laughs> just as good. <laughs> yeah, Wednesdays, nothing, yeah, that's right. Nothing is bad about uh, about checking out uh, jewishstory.co. Hit the donate button uh, and uh, follow Rabbi Mike on his various uh, stuff, including on Twitter, which I follow him at Jewish Story, uh, and also your Patreon page. So a lot of ways to connect to, Pete, to, to Rabbi Mike. And also, of course, uh, has a great personal counseling that he offers as well. Um, of course, my website, yishaifleischer.com, uh, is easy for you to connect to me. And I am at everything at Yishai Fleischer. Uh, and of course, we'll be actually opening a lot more donation options with all kinds of Google wallets, Apple Pay, and all kinds of stuff like that. Wow. What I mean by donation is just just buying, buying your friend a cup of coffee. That's really the way to look at it. Yeah, uh, also, spread the vision. That's it. That's right. Uh, the Torah portion that we've been talking about is Emor. That's this week's Torah portion. Uh, I really love this banner. Thing. Uh, I love this banner thing. It's so great. And you know what? People hear it, and now people will see it with their eyes. We're in the Torah portion of Emor, and yet it's only Wednesday. Uh, I still are, I still have this banner ready for you, which is Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. And, and I should have created another banner, uh, which, is, which is Happy Second... Happy second Pesach. Okay, celebrate it. Celebrate it a lot. It's an important. It's a. It's a beautiful. Uh, it's a beautiful holiday. And it's and and oh and what what we did. You you started on the theme a little bit, but if if you've ever wanted more from God, if you ever wanted to get closer to Him, including moving to the land of Israel or going more to the land of Israel or wearing uh, the Torah commands Jews to wear uh, uh, the tzitzit. But it also adds this idea of uh, the blue string, the tchelet. And today that is an available option to us. Uh, so you could do that or you want to go to the Temple Mount or whatever you want to do. This is the holiday of people who want more. Rabbi Mike Foyer, I want to thank you very much for joining me My here pleasure. on the broadcast. I want to wish you a Shabbat Shalom. Happy second Pesach. Shabbat um, Shalom. Happy second Pesach. And have, keep up the great work out there. Gam Lamar. Shabbat Shalom. God bless you, everybody. Shalom. Stay tuned. More great stuff is on the way. Rabbi Mike Foyer joins me here every week. And uh, lots of love for you. Also, if you have any uh, questions, you, wanna, you want me to deal with any specific topics, I'm happy to do that. So write me an email, yishai at yishaifleischer.com. And I'm happy to, uh, to take your questions and, and deal with, the, with your issues. They could be political. They could be anything, anything Israel. I mean anything Israel. Uh, anything about Judaism, about Israel, about what we're doing today, uh, about what matters. In fact, let me see. I'm going to look at the comment stream right now. If you have anything that you want to ask, I don't say anything yet. But in any case, uh, my email is always available to you. And let's stay in touch. We have to be uh, together. We've gone through, as Rabbi Mike said, uh, personal, um, personal uh, 
rectification in the period that led up to uh, that led up to the high holidays. But now we're in national re- rectification. We're trying so hard to come together as a nation and as lovers of Israel from around the world to strengthen the story of Israel so that the world could be lit up uh, with God's light and God's truth, which is channeled through Israel, but is really a global phenomenon. So thank you very much for being with me wherever you are. Lots of love. And I have a phrase about the land of Israel. I call it the land of blessings. So blessings from the land of blessings. The land of Israel is a land of all kinds of blessings. It could be technology. It could be the Bible. It could be fertility. Uh, it could be finding uh, uh, your your mate and your loved one for the rest of your life. These, these blessings come through God who channels them through the land of blessings. So I want to bless you from the land of blessings with Hashem's blessings. God bless you all wherever you are. Stay tuned, stay strong, stay connected. And shalom. Hi, this is Josh Haston, host of Israel Uncensored, here on the Land of Israel Network. Tune in every Monday to hear the latest news coming from Israel, plus interviews with top Israeli politicians, media personalities, and activists all doing their part to counter anti-Israel propaganda and BDS. Don't miss a minute. Be sure to stream or download all of the amazing programming from our wide range of hosts here at the Land of Israel Network on thelandofisrael.com. All right, everybody, we're back here on the Yishai Fleischer Show. Thank you so much to Rabbi Mike for joining me and talking about the blasphemer and Pesach Sheni. I actually wanted to make a little comment about the uh, the blasphemer, the guy who cursed the name of God, and I didn't get a chance to do it with Rabbi Mike, and, and I kind of remembered it as I was uh, with the kids um, and talking about the Torah portion in preparation for Shabbat. And, and I said to the kids, you know, there's something wrong with this guy that he, the blasphemer, that he didn't, that he didn't turn to Moses to help him with his problem, nor did he seem to turn to God, saying, well, God, you've given, given me certain limitations, certain challenges. I want to thank you for them. How do I move forward? Instead, he curses his lot. He curses his lot. And that is not the markings of, of a Jewish way of thinking. Uh, by cursing his lot and by cursing others, by fighting, instead of accepting, loving, turning to great people, turning to God, he, he, he completely missed the boat. He may have had some justification for his anger, but that's just not the way to handle it. And with that, he made himself more of an outsider than anything else. And uh, it's, still, it's, still, it's still something that we could learn from to help people come in instead of keeping them out. But still he, a person feeling on the out, should have turned to God and should have turned to great people and had more humility inside. That's also true for all of us. We all have limitations and things that that kind of keep us outside of something that we want to be in, Uh, some kind of club, some kind of situation, some kind of health, some kind of money, some kind of, uh, 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 you know, I don't know, understanding Talmud or a million things that were kept out of or, or shape or something like that or money. Or, 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 or this kind of wife and this kind of husband and these kind of children, we're always kept out of something. And just to thank Hashem for our limitations and the gifts that we do have, and not to focus so much on what we don't have, is I think one of the greatest secrets in the world. If, if I could share with you 
a secret that I've learned. It's that focus on what you do have and what you can do as opposed to what you don't have and what you can't do. Focus on what you know as opposed to what you don't know and have yet to attain. That's, that's, that's a secret that I think is very important. All right, we're going to transition now to a very special section of today's show. As I said in the introduction, I'm going to be taking a, a section from, um, actually, I'm lifting a whole episode of a podcast made by a congressman named Dan Crenshaw, who's a former a Navy SEAL officer who lost one eye, almost lost his other eye, has, has written a few very, very interesting books um, with, um, with, with, a, with a kind of... Uh, uh, back, he you, he would call himself a conservative Christian, but I think he's back to American basics type person. And uh, he interviews my good friend Zev Ornstein from the City of David, the international uh, the director of international affairs at the City of David. It's just a masterful interview, and I think very important. And I want you to hear the, the ways Zev answers some of the questions and some of the questions that were asked. Uh, now, as opposed to what usually happens on this podcast in the Ishai Fleischer show. You're going to hear the name of the the Christian uh, the Christian deity the Christian God uh, said a lot. That's not in the usual uh, the usual uh, makeup of this show, uh, since we are a Torah based show. We reject uh, the the beliefs of of other religions, or at least we do not accept them. Let's put it that way. We we are that's not our beliefs, and uh, other beliefs can be in competition or antithetical or in our opinion, may be close to idolatrous. You could say all these things. But that's not the point. It's really not the point. The real point of this, uh, of this section of the show is to hear how, first thing, uh, explanations are made to other people, how our issues are brought closer to other people, and how we can uh, be, in a careful way, uh, able to help people understand stuff through their prism without selling out our our belief system and to make it clear that there's a separation, but still to respect the fact that other people come from a different tradition. I think that was done very masterfully uh, here on this and on this uh, on this Dan Crenshaw uh, show, which by the way has a a great name uh, called "We Hold These Truths," which is just a great, great, uh, uh, obviously a great title for an American show. Uh, and also, you're going to learn a lot about biblical. Uh, archaeology that verifies the biblical narrative so without further ado here's dan crenshaw with with city of david's zev ornstein we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created as a member of congress i get to have a lot of really interesting people in the office experts on what they're talking about this is the podcast for insights into the issues china bioterrorism medicare for all in-depth discussions breaking it down into simple terms we hold we hold we hold these truths we hold these truths with dan crenshaw the Welcome back, everybody. This is a really cool and special episode. Today, we are going to talk about the city of David. And uh, to have us, uh, or to give us some help with that conversation, I've got Zev Orenstein here. Uh, he's the Director of International Affairs at the City of David Foundation. Now, he's a New Jersey native, but after completing university, moved to Israel in 2003. Uh, we met uh, a little while back when um, Zev came into the office in D.C., and really explained to me the, the fascinating history and, and current situation with the city of David, um, the archaeological discovery, discoveries that have been ongoing, and, and, it's, and it's 
importance to our culture, our history, uh, religions, multiple religions, of course. Uh, so, Zev, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, um, I guess technically you're not here here because you are in Israel. I am not in Israel. I am in Houston, Texas. Uh, so so b- before we get into the city of David, um, you know, it, it is the coronavirus world that we live in right now. What how, how has Israel dealt with this? Where are you, you guys are on a pretty strict lockdown, aren't you? Yeah, in, in fact, um, we, we've varied from actual uh, countrywide lockdown. We celebrated uh, past the Passover festival, the whole country was on lockdown. You couldn't leave your homes. All the super, everything was literally closed except for hospitals. Uh, aside from that, over the last, I guess, five, six weeks, it's, it's been, uh, aside from, um, going to hospitals and, and filling up your car with gas to the extent that anyone's driving, supermarkets, pharmacies, the country's pretty much been shut down. We've been allowed to, uh, go about 300 feet from our home wearing masks. Uh, things like that. No one's traveling. No one's coming into the country. No one's going out of the country. Most people aren't working. Uh, unemployment is about 26%, give or take, uh, as of right now. Uh, at the same, same time, it looks like there's a light at the end of the tunnel uh, slowly coming out. Have so you guys had a lot of cases? Open. Have you guys had a lot of cases over there? That's an extreme. I mean, that's that's more extreme than any lockdown we've had in the United States. We, we've been fortunate. I think we, we have... Uh, we've had obviously thousands of cases. Uh, we, as of today, recorded our 201st, uh, fatality. So the, the, uh, we have not had, thank God, a lot of deaths. Um, we've yeah. had infections like everywhere else in the world, but, uh, I think hopefully, uh, the measures that the country took somewhat early on have, have hopefully mitigated a lot of the, uh, yeah. um, is the, is the debate similar over there? As well? I mean, we have a very heated debate right now in the United States about um, how early we should have locked down, what whether we should have locked down at all, uh, whether we should take on a more Sweden-like model. I mean, like Sweden is the polar opposite of Israel. Um, you know, like, it, like I'm actually not sure I've heard of a, a more of a stringent lockdown than what I'm hearing um, regarding Israel. Maybe Italy. Um, but you know, but even in New York city, I, I'm pretty sure people can still get out. You know, they, they can do their essential business, go grocery store shopping. I'm not sure how else you get groceries. I'd be, be curious how Israel was, um, handing out food, but, um, is that debate pretty heated in Israel? Are, are people getting pretty anxious and impatient with the lockdowns? Well, I, I think the, the debate was not so much in the beginning over the measures that were taken. I think, largely in this country it was understood that there was a serious issue going on. Uh, we saw what was happening in Italy and other places and, and we didn't want that here. Uh, I think the question now, which, which most, most of the world is, is trying to figure out, which is what is the exit strategy? How do you get the economy back up and running? Uh, I mean, people were able to go to the supermarket to look like you couldn't go to the supermarkets, although uh, they would take your temperature outside the supermarket, not let in more than a certain number at a time. And one thing that Israel did, which was really, uh, I think, uh, uh, inspiring, um, I have parents uh, who live not far from us. And what the country basically did for people, I think over 60 or 65, is, is they were sending them food packages. Uh, my parents get, I think, twice a week some type of uh, delivery from the state, from the municipality, giving them all their basic food needs and, and we supplement whatever else they might need. Uh, but everything has been done to make sure that the people who are at the highest risk uh, remain 
safe. And now uh, Israel's beginning to open up the economy again for people to re- slowly return to work, for schools to begin to reopen. Uh, so again, the debate right now is, is not so much as it is in the United States over who's to blame and, and things like that. It's more, okay, uh, how do we now get back on with our lives? Whatever the new normal is going to look like, let's kind of get on with it. But, but it's, it's less, it's less uh, as it is in America, it's polarized and it's all Netanyahu's fault or this person's fault. It's okay, now we just need to you know, move on somehow. And I think that's where the debate is focusing largely. Yeah, you, you know, I wonder if um, the reason Israel and the United States have such different political – I mean, it's still its still extremely divisive, and, and it's a hard-hitting political atmosphere in Israel. I don't want to downplay that because it is. But there's a big difference, which is if you're in Israel, you, 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 are, you are consistently under threat, right? Like there's, there's always this, there's always this um, possibility that thousands of rockets might be leaving Gaza at any moment and raining down on your neighborhood. And I, I think that gives people a different sense of perspective. And I, and you know, I, I, I don't hear the word, I could be wrong. You might tell me I'm wrong, but I don't hear the word microaggression very often from Israelis. You know, it's not, it's no. not people, people no. don't get offended over like silly little things like we do in America. And there's a sense of perspective that, that uh, I think is a, a place like um, Israel has that maybe in America we don't. And I wonder if, if that adds to the, or, or, or helps the political conversations ever so slightly, because what you're hearing here in the United States is just pure political opportunism. It's not just the blaming who's at fault kind of nonsense. It's, um, it's also the, the opportunism that occurs like, Oh, you want to open up the economy? Well, I guess you want to kill people. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just the most disingenuous, disgusting political argument. And, and the people making it know they're making it in bad faith. They know that's not really what the conversation's about. Um, but they'll do it anyway because they know that there's no counterfactual. And you, you can just right. blame people for, you know, it's a, it's a virus without a vaccine, guys. Like, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's going to spread again um, as we open up our economies. Like, there's going to be more cases. And uh, just like the flu, like, it's, you know, it's, it's. Um, we, we need to learn to live with risk. And I think people in Israel probably understand that a heck of a lot better. Um, you know, this, this notion of living with risk, but continuing to live your life and, and then figure out how to mitigate that risk and, and show the strength to, to actually persevere through it. Absolutely. I mean, Israel, I think, has, has two things going for it that, that you alluded to. One is the region that we're living in where we have, whether it's uh, Lebanon and Syria to the north or, or Hamas, to the south uh, and Iran to the east, we have no shortage of, of uh, people surrounding us that on a good day passively and, and on most days actively are seeking our destruction in one form or another. And, and therefore you need to find ways to, to live with that. And, and so we've gotten good at it. And the second part is uh, being a part of the Jewish people, Israel is a Jewish state, uh, we, we have perspective in terms of being the ancient people. One of the sayings that came out around the Passover time when we were all sheltering in place was, we survived Pharaoh, we'll get through this too. Which is, it, it, we're an ancient people, we've been around for thousands of years, and we've seen a lot of bad stuff. And we've, we've got, gotten through it. We just uh, commemorated uh, recently uh, Holocaust Memorial Day. We've been through really, really bad things, and we're still here. And it's not to make light of Corona or the Holocaust or anything else, but it is to give a sense of perspective that 
life is hard and you need to find a way to persevere and to get through it somehow. Uh, and, and that's what I think this country is doing. And, and hopefully we're going to see the light end of the tunnel, but yeah, it, you have to have a mentality of we're not victims here. Uh, yeah. We control our own destiny. doesn't mean you don't have hard stuff, but at the end of the day, we'll, we'll figure out the solution and we will get through it and we will move on with whatever the new normal is. Yeah, I remember um, when I was visiting Israel uh, with with a bunch of classmates um, in a master's program I was in, and uh, we were there during Purim, and I asked uh, one of my Israeli classmates, said, okay, so what, what is Purim celebrating exactly? Um, because from the outside, it just looks like Halloween. Uh, everybody's dressed up, mm-hmm. but uh, obviously there's a, there's a deeper meaning to it. And uh, his explanation was pretty funny. It was, well, uh, like most Jewish holidays, everybody tried to kill us and we survived and now we're celebrating. <laughs> so um, there's a that's serious, it. there's a, it's dark, but there's a serious sense of perspective there. All right. I want to move on to um, what we're really supposed to be talking about today, which is the city of David. This is a, just a fascinating um, subject matter. So I'm just going to start in really broad terms. Uh, what is the city of David? So the city of David is the place where Jerusalem began. It's the historic site of biblical Jerusalem. Uh, you have billions of people around the world who feel a connection to Jerusalem. And when you think of the Jerusalem of the Bible, people like King David, King Solomon, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they were hanging out in the city of David. Where is the city of David? If uh, one uh, imagines for a moment Jerusalem, and you imagine the Temple Mount, if you imagine the old city of Jerusalem, uh, the city of David is just south of the Temple Mount, just south of the Western Wall. Uh, and if you think of you know, the, the Western Wall, the Temple Mount, if you associate that with 2,000 years ago, uh, around the time period of Jesus, King David is 1,000 years prior to that. Uh, the Hebrew Bible ends about four centuries before Jesus comes into existence. So Jerusalem of the Bible is the city of David. That is where uh, the kings of the Bible are ruling, where the prophets of the Bible are preaching. It's in the city of David uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem, just outside the old city walls. Okay, so that's the, that's the city of David. And how long have we known it's right there? Is, 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 there's well, been a lot of I'll recent archaeological discoveries, but I think we've known its general location for, for how long? So up until 150 years ago, everyone thought the biblical city of Jerusalem was the old city of Jerusalem, surrounded by the iconic old city walls, which, believe it or not, only date back about 450 years to the Ottoman period. But until 1867, the old city, as far as the world is concerned, that's biblical Jerusalem. Until Queen Victoria of England wants to discover the treasures of the Bible, she sends a man by the name of Captain Charles Warren to search for, among other things, the Ark of the Covenant. And he ends up making an inadvertent discovery. He wants to dig on the Temple Mount. Uh, back then, just like it is today, it was religiously sensitive, politically sensitive. The Ottomans don't let him dig up the Temple Mount. He realizes he can't go back to the Queen empty-handed. So he says if he can't dig on the Temple Mount, the site of the biblical Mount Moriah, if he can't dig there, then he'll dig near it. He comes down from the Temple Mount to the south, and he starts searching uh, around a barren 11-acre ridge. And he starts to make all sorts of connections, and he comes up with a theory that that ridge is the city of David, is biblical Jerusalem. The problem is that at that time, there was almost nothing there. And the whole world, scholar and layman alike, say, Charles, that is the most ridiculous thing we've ever heard. Everyone knows Jerusalem is the old city. 
except over the next 150 years, it turns out that Charles Warren was in fact correct, that the original location of biblical Jerusalem, the place where Jerusalem began, is an 11-acre ridge just outside the walls of the Old City, just south of the Temple Mount. And since then, it has become one of the most archaeologically excavated sites in the world, the most excavated site in Israel, where virtually every day, except during Corona, uh, discoveries are being unearthed, which are showing, not simply as a matter of faith, but as a matter of fact, the connection of Jews and Christians to Jerusalem going back thousands of years. Yeah, and, and maybe I want to I want to elaborate on that a little bit. Actually, um, you know why the city? Why? Why? Who was King David? Um, and the importance of, of of King David to Jewish history and and into the history of, of that region. Can you can you go into a little bit more detail on that? Sure. So so King David was the person who essentially united the the tribes. If you think of like Braveheart in a certain sense, to unite the clans. Uh, before King David, you had King Saul, but we were not really a united monarchy in the sense of having one sovereign power that really represented everybody. It was after King David came to power that the tribes get together and say to him, we want you to represent all of us. And that's what he does. He expands the borders of, of the kingdom. He defeats the enemies. And ultimately, he's the one that makes Jerusalem the capital uh, of that kingdom. And from that time, that has been the only capital that the Jewish people have ever known in terms of sovereignty. It's been Jerusalem. He's the one that brings the Ark of the Covenant up, up to Jerusalem, which is the city of David, of course, named after King David. And he is the one who wants to build the temple atop the Temple Mount, which is why the Temple Mount is called Temple Mount. It was called Mount Moriah before that. Uh, it's called Temple Mount because the temple was built there uh, during the time not of David, but of, of his son Solomon, that temple stands for over four centuries, destroyed by the Babylonians 2,500 years ago, rebuilt a few decades later, uh, and, and stands until the year 70 when the Romans destroy it. But David is the one who essentially brings about the united uh, kingdom of Israel, and then is the one who makes Jerusalem the capital. He's the one who leads to the building of the temple on the Temple Mount. David is the, I guess you can call him the George Washington of Israel. He is the one who essentially brings, puts our country on the map. Right. Um, let's talk about Temple Mount for a minute. I'm not sure a lot of people understand the, the significance of the Temple Mount and, and why it's, why, why there is uh, such serious contention um, uh, w- between uh, people of Islamic faith and the Jewish people because of the Temple Mount. So you mentioned uh, it's been, destroyed twice the, the re- most recently um by the romans in uh, 70 ad uh and and right now um what, what's on top of the temple mount so today on the temple mount you have two islamic shrines you have the al-aqsa mosque which uh according to islamic tradition is their number three holy place after mecca and medina and, and then you have the dome of the rock that is the what you could say the iconic uh, structure of the center, center of the Temple Mount with the golden dome on it, mm-hmm. uh, and those are two Islamic shrines. Now, when you speak of the Dome of the Rock, the rock that's being referred to according to the biblical tradition is what's known as the foundation stone or the place uh, where the world was created. That's the spot where the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis the famous story of the binding of Isaac, that that takes place there on that site of what is now the Dome of the Rock, but the rock that's being referred to 
is this place where the story of the binding of Isaac takes place. That's the spot where the two temples stood. And what's happened throughout this region and really into Europe also, one of the ways that if you are, if you are conquering power, if you want to show that my God is better than your God or my ideology is better than your ideology, is you essentially take over the holy places of the people that you defeated. And so when, when the Muslims come to Jerusalem, we're talking about already in about 638 or so uh, CE, when they come over, they take over the Temple Mount to show their supremacy, not only just over uh, the Jewish people and Judaism, but also over Christianity. And over the following centuries, there's a long-running feud between Muslims and Christians uh, running through the Crusades and, and onwards uh, over who does Jerusalem belong to, uh, which God in a certain, self, in a certain sense was, was right. Was it the Jewish God, the Christian God, the Muslim God? And in the Middle East, those things are still, uh, I guess, things that people take very seriously. Right. They're uh, hotly debated. And so the, the Temple Mount, when, when we talk about the Western Wall, so if you go to, into the old city of Jerusalem and you see a lot of people praying into a wall, you see all these um, uh, small pieces of paper where prayers are written onto and they're stuffed into the cracks of the wall. Um, that's, that's the Western wall, which is, it's in, which was the, the Western wall of the temple Mount, right? It's the only, it's the only access that Jews and, and I guess Christians also have to the temple Mount. Cause I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I don't think I can get on top of the temple Mount, even as a, I, I'm pretty sure Jewish people cannot. Um, am I correct about that? Okay. So, so the way it works is the Western wall is uh, a retaining wall that would have held the Temple Mount up. It wasn't a wall of the temple itself. It was a retaining wall of, of the Temple Mount going back about 2,000 years to the time of Herod uh, or to the time of Jesus. That, that's the time period that we're talking about. Now, there are, other, there are other retaining walls around the Temple Mount that also go back that far. Most notably, we're talking about the Southern Wall, the Southern Steps, which have a lot of significance both to Jews and to Christians. Uh, so, so you do have much of the Temple Mount walls that do go back to that time period. Now, going up to the Temple Mount today for non-Muslims is possible but complicated. There are many gates onto the Temple Mount. The only one that non-Muslims can use is the gate right next to the Temple Mount. And non-Muslims have very restricted uh, access. You're talking probably about two hours, three hours or so a day, uh, where, again, Jews, Christians, tourists from wherever, they can go up, but they are given very strict, strict instructions by the Israeli police about what you can't do when you go up to the Temple Mount. So, for instance, if, if you wanted to go up to the Temple Mount and you said, wow, this is a place that's central to my faith, to the Bible, uh, to who I am, is, is whether as a Jew, as a Christian, whatever it is, you're not allowed to bring a Bible up with you. You're not allowed to bring a prayer book up with you. You're not allowed to actively uh, recite prayers on the Temple Mount. Uh, and the reason for that is and if you do that, the Israeli police will, will remove you. Now, you might say, why would Israel do that? And, and it's very simple. It's not that Israel itself has any problem with a Jew or Christian praying up on the Temple Mount. The issue is the Islamic reaction when those things happen. And sadly, uh, the uh, Islamic trust that, that oversees the Temple Mount, it has been a site uh, or a flashpoint for uh, radical extremists uh, uh, from the Muslim faith who are not tolerant of others and the connection that others have to the Temple Mount. And because that has been a flashpoint in terms of causing all sorts of riots and violence and 
all sorts of other things, Israel generally tries to do everything in its power to avoid lighting the spark of a powder keg, which the Temple Mount represents uh, to Jews and to Muslims and to Christians, but the Muslims are the ones that uh, turn violent around it. And, and so that's, that, that's why there are so many restrictions towards non-Muslims and the access to the Temple Mount. But that said, you could go up if you want to, but it would be a limited limited experience. The reason why this is an important thing to bring up, and, and the, the message is this, that Israel is so tolerant uh, to the point where you're actually enforcing intolerance uh, against your own religion. Um, but that, that's basically what's happening. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. the reason this is important is because as we talk about the city of David, the city of David is technically in East Jerusalem. And for, for outsiders looking in on, on you know, what the future of the Israel-Palestine conflict looks like, oftentimes people talk about just splitting Jerusalem up. Like there's already an East and West, you know, there's Palestinians on one side, Jews on the other, just, uh, just split it up. What's the big deal? But it's just like any city, nothing is ever that simple. Um, there's a lot of uh, overlap, and there's and when it comes to um, important monuments like this, or important uh, religious and historical sites like the City of David or the Temple Mount, um, these things are important to a lot of different religions. And only only Israel actually cares about freedom of religion. It would seem to me, um, it doesn't seem that way. That's just clearly true, and. And so, and so the question is, you know, if you just cut these things off, uh, what happens to my ability as a Christian to to visit the city of David? This, these are these are important things we have to wrestle with. I mean, the the answer is really very simple. Uh, I, if you wanted today today to visit the Church of the Nativity, uh, it would be very difficult for you to do that. Uh, the Church of the Nativity, which is today in in Bethlehem, which is under Palestinian control in the early two thousands. Uh, Palestinian terrorists used the church itself as a terror base. It, it's You look around the region and you see, whether it's ISIS or others, the destruction of antiquities and holy sites of other faiths. I mean, the Middle East, sadly, is not known for its tolerance of, of other people's faiths and religions and beliefs. And the only reason why, you know, we just, we, we just started this, this month Ramadan, and in a normal time, which we're not in right now with Corona, but normal time, you would have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Muslims coming to worship at the Temple Mount, which, again, that's a place that they feel a deep connection to. I respect that. But the reason that's possible is because Israel is a sovereign, because you don't find the equivalent anywhere else in the Middle East for Christians or for Jews. Now, when we think of Jerusalem and the sites that make Jerusalem, Jerusalem, for, for Christians and Jews, for billions of people around the world. What are those sites? We're talking about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or the Garden Tomb. We're talking about the Temple Mount, the Western Wall, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, the City of David. Every single one of those sites, every single site that makes Jerusalem, Jerusalem, religiously and historically significant to all of those people, it's located in what much of the world refers to as East Jerusalem. And as you mentioned, well, what would happen if Jerusalem was not under Israeli sovereignty? We know what would happen, because from 1948 to 1967, when Jordan illegally occupied this area, they blew up every synagogue in the old city. They desecrated tens of thousands of graves in the ancient Jewish cemetery in, on the Mount of Olives. They did not provide any access 
to the Western Wall. We know what this story looks like. The only way that you can say with absolute certainty that when you visit Israel, when you visit Jerusalem, and you want to go visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you want to go visit the City of David, you want to go visit the Mount of Olives, the only way you know that will happen is if it's under Israeli sovereignty. The only reason why all of the three monotheistic faiths have access to their holy places uh, today in Jerusalem is because, as you said, Israel assures and protects the freedom of worship of all those people. And you, you, you look at, for instance, uh, you have a body in the United Nations called UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, uh, and they passed repeated resolutions actually denying the significance of Jerusalem to both Christians and to Jews. They say the Temple Mount and the Western Wall are exclusively Islamic, and they go on to condemn the archaeology in a place like the City of David, again, because every day when we're digging, we're unearthing antiquities that are showing that Jews and Christians have been in Jerusalem for thousands of years, that so much of what's written in the Bible, in terms of the, the people that walk through the pages of the Bible, the events that are described in the Bible as having taken place in Jerusalem, we can actually prove them. And that is what's driving so many in the United Nations, so many in uh, the Middle East, in, in the Palestinian leadership, it drives them crazy because the story that they're telling is that Jesus was a Palestinian, that Jews were never here before, and uh, all the archaeology is fake. And, and so that's what we're up against. So let's talk about the archaeology and, and what's been discovered lately and, and, and the significance of all of that. I mean, what are, what, are, what are some of the highlights there? So one of the most significant discoveries, and, and this discovery is significant not just for us as individuals, but, but for our two countries. Uh, 2004, at the very southern end of the city of David, there's a road. Beneath the road, there's a sewage pipe. And in 2004, the sewage pipe explodes. And now you have a big mess. So the municipality, I'm sure you know, you, you're dealing with this uh, in your own way. You have to keep the constituents, uh, make sure the needs are, are, are being taken care of. And so the municipality here uh, you know, says, okay, we've got to go in and in construction crews. But Jerusalem is not just another municipality. And the city of David, in the heart of the Holy Basin, is not just another part of Jerusalem. And so you don't only send in construction crews, you also have to send in archaeologists. Mm -hmm. And the archaeologists are overseeing the repair of the sewage pipe. And they begin, you know, they're, they're, they're watching the bulldozers and dump trucks do their work, and they begin to hear scraping and scratching. It doesn't sound right. They clear everyone out, and it turns out that in repairing the sewage pipe, the construction crews had inadvertently uncovered uh, a set of steps going back some 2,000 years. And there was only one other set of steps the archaeologists knew in Jerusalem that looked just like those steps, and those were the steps, the southern steps, leading up into uh, the Temple Mount, up to the Temple 2,000 years ago. So they said, well, what are the steps down at the bottom of the city of David? And they realized that they had uncovered the steps leading down to the ancient Pool of Siloam. Now, the Pool of Siloam has deep significance uh, in the Christian scriptures. Uh, it's referred to as a site of the healing of the blind man. And the Bible, of course, talks about that there are three times a year when all of Israel is mandated to make pilgrimage up to the temple on the Temple Mount. We're talking about Passover, Pentecost, tabernacles. And the archaeologists said, well, wait a minute. If we know that now we've discovered the Pool of Siloam, which was the size of two Olympic-sized swimming pools, the reason it was so big is because the historian Josephus says that nearly three million people are going on pilgrimage 2,000 years ago up to the temple. We're talking about, again, the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago. They said, why... Why, you know, how does everyone get from the pool all the way up a half mile to the Temple Mount? And so they decided to widen the excavation. 
And what they discover was the 2,000-year-old pilgrimage road. It's being excavated literally as we speak. It is what you can call the biblical superhighway. It's the road that pretty much almost anyone who's listening to this, to this podcast, your ancestors, my ancestors, they walked on this road 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem when they went on pilgrimage up to the temple. Not a road near there, not stones that look like the ones that are being discovered. It's the actual road. I believe you walked on it about two years ago yeah. uh, when you were in, in the city of David. Oh yeah, I mean it's and, it's, and, and it's again, really it's, cool. <laughs> it's underground still. Um, you know, you've got the road above you, but it's it's fascinating. And, and what's and what's amazing about this discovery? We had uh, this past June, uh, we had a breakthrough ceremony for the lower half of the pilgrimage road, connecting from the Pool of Siloam up to the halfway point, which is where you were when you visited. And it's still not open to the public. And when we had this this groundbreaking ceremony, we had nearly a dozen officials who came from the Trump administration. And one of the questions I, I received more than any other, which is, okay, we would have understood if Ambassador David Friedman, United States Ambassador to Israel, if he would have come to the ceremony out of respect for the alliance, why did the administration send nearly a dozen officials to this event? Why was it that after the breakthrough ceremony, there was an official dinner in the United States Embassy to celebrate this historic occasion? Why is it so important to America? And what this administration understands, led by United States Ambassador David Friedman, is that the foundations of America, the heritage and values that America is built upon, they have their roots in Jerusalem. And therefore, the pilgrimage road, the Pool of Siloam, the city of David, is not just significant to the Jewish people and to Israel, but it also holds a deep significance to America as a country, and obviously to tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of Americans. Yeah. And then that's, that's absolutely right. You know, we often say that, um, America is founded on Judeo-Christian history period. There's no other way to, to describe the founding of America and how our founders thought about, uh, morality and, and the relationship between, you know, the, the state and, and religion. And, um, it's, 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 it's incredibly important to protect these things. Uh, I, I want to ask a couple more questions about what we've actually discovered there and really try to help people visualize this. I mean, right now there's, there's the, the goal is to, is to continue ex- excavating this tunnel so that people can actually walk all the way down from the, the, the or, or all up from the pool of Siloam to the, to the temple Mount and, and really walk along the same road that, that Jesus walked on. One of the things I thought was cool when I was down there, was um, they pointed out a little, you know, because you're, you're on this like downward sloping road. Um, and and every once in a while, there's there's sort of a, a series of steps or a pedestal off to the side of the road, which they say is what is what is what people would use to sort of stand atop and, and say whatever it is they were going to say. I guess it's like, like, uh, you know, we, yeah. modern day, we've got billboards everywhere. But back then, they, I guess they had people just saying things. And so Jesus was, of course, one of these people. Um, and, uh, that's, there's, there's, there's a possibility we don't, we can't know for sure, but like you, you might actually be looking at a place where Jesus stood and, and gave sermons. I mean, here's what I can tell you. I mean, obviously I, I personally wasn't there 2000 years ago, so I can't say whether or not he was, but I was asked uh, not long ago by one of your colleagues in the Senate. And he asked me that question. He says, what, what's the likelihood that, that Jesus walked on this road? 
And so I said to him, I said, Senator, I don't want to tell you stories. Let me give you a conservative estimate. He said, okay. I said, I said, conservatively speaking, the likelihood is 100%. So how do you know? I said, it's very simple. I said, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was Jewish. He would have gone with all the other Jews to purify himself in the pool of Siloam. He would have then walked up along the pilgrimage road, that half mile going up through the city of David, coming out of the footsteps of the Western Wall of the Temple Mount of the Southern Steps. That's what everyone was doing 2,000 years ago. Uh, that's what all everyone in Jerusalem, that's what they were doing. If, if you believe there was a historic Jesus 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, he was walking through the city of David. That's, that's, that was the main thoroughfare of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And therefore, whatever was happening in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, including the, the figures uh, that, that you've mentioned, this is where it's happening. The soapbox, the, or the podium that, that we refer to it as, I mean, that was the original speaker's corner where you would have had 2,000 years ago if somebody had a religious message, a political message, or an ethical message that they wanted to share with the masses, that's where they're going to get up and speak. And right next to that podium, you have shops and stalls for people who, on their way up to the temple, need to get something for a temple offering. Maybe need to get a bottle of water or a hat or a souvenir. But you can see, on the one hand, the economic life of, of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, the shops and the stalls, you see the podium where sermons would have been delivered. Uh, you have the actual flagstones leading up to the temple. And as you mentioned, it's an incline. And, and among the most famous uh, psalms attributed to King David are known as the Songs of Ascent. Now, what, what, what's, why are they called Songs of Ascent? Well, they would be said when a person was actually ascending up to the temple in Jerusalem. And when you're in the city of David, when you're on the actual pilgrimage road and you see that in order to get up to the temple, you actually have to go uphill for a half mile. It's a song of ascent. You are singing those songs as you're ascending on a real road in a real Jerusalem, going up to a real temple. It's all real. Again, it's, it's not simply a matter of faith. It's a matter of fact. You could see it. You could touch it. And, and that's what makes it all the more ironic that you have... Uh, people in the Palestinian leadership, like Saeed Arakat, like Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, who, in response to the discovery of the pilgrimage road, they say it's fake. It's not real. And, and it's just almost, if it wasn't sad, it would be laughable. That how, do you, how do you deny something of the magnitude of the pilgrimage road? We're not talking about like a little alleyway. We're talking about the biblical superhighway, a road that was walked upon by millions of people, you don't fake that. I mean, it, it's, you can see it with your own eyes, you can touch it with your own hands, you can walk on it with your own feet. And, and I think that that's why they are doing everything they can to stop the excavations in a place like the city of David. Because they know that if, God willing, in the next three years or so, we're able to make that connection from the Pool of Siloam all the way up to the footsteps of the Western Wall, of the Temple Mount. That's it. Meaning you will then have millions and millions of people from America, from all over the world, of all faiths and backgrounds, who will be able to say it's true. Our connection goes back to Jerusalem thousands of years. Israel is not a colonial state. We're not occupiers. We're not foreigners. Uh, for, the, for the tens of millions, about hundreds of millions of Americans who view their heritage and identity as being rooted uh, in the Bible, in that great biblical tradition, I say it's true. Not just stories that I was told. You could prove it. You could see it. You could touch it. And, and that's inspiring, but also terrifying to those on the other side who 
are fighting against that as much as they can. Yeah. And, and what does that future look like? I mean, can we, do you think we'll get to a point where, um, it's, it's no longer underground, but we, we excavate it to a point where we can have it above ground. I mean, I, although I think there's actually houses above the, uh, above the road right now. Right. I mean, how, how do you think that looks from a practical standpoint? Like, and how, how will people it's, it's be largely, able to view this? It's largely going to be underground. I mean, one of the challenges of Jerusalem and this challenge you find in, in, in Greece, in Rome, is you have an ancient city that in many places is covered up by a modern one. Now, in the United States, you'd say, all right, we'll use eminent domain, and the government can, can you know, give everyone some money and clear out the neighborhood. In Jerusalem, for whether religious reasons and political reasons, that, that's not going to happen. And so today, the city of David is a mixed Jewish-Muslim neighborhood, and it's always going to remain so. That, that's not going to change. I don't think anyone has any plans to change uh, the makeup of the neighborhood. And so what's going to happen is that the excavations in the city of David, like the pilgrimage road, are going to take place while preserving the modern neighborhood above. So you're going to have modern Jerusalem above, ancient biblical Jerusalem below, and, and really have a situation of the best of both worlds, uh, preserving the modern, uncovering the ancient, making it accessible to everyone, to the whole world, to come and see and connect with, with their heritage. That's, that's really what we're trying to do. Could you imagine that? I mean, you, you, you just discover that below your house, like literally below your house was a place where it's almost certain that Jesus walked. And, uh, and, 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 and I mean, what a feeling that must be. I just, I can't even imagine how to react to that. I mean, what a, what a dinner conversation that is for people. And it's a very cool one. So today, Archaeologists in the city of David, they're uncovering antiquities like seals with names and figures straight out of the Bible, inscriptions chiseled into stone affirming events that took place uh, described in the Bible. Uh, Imagine today you're sending correspondence to your members in Congress. You have encryption and encoding to ensure that no one's going to read your messages. But imagine two and a half thousand years ago, you're a government official and you don't have that same technology. How can you ensure that the only people who will read your mail are the intended recipients. So what you're going to do is you're going to write your letter, roll it up, tie it up, and then right before you hand it to the messenger, you're going to take a small piece of clay, and you're going to put that clay on the knot. And then you're going to take your ring, your signet ring, which has on it your name and then son or daughter of your father's name. You will then imprint that into the clay, you hand it to the messenger, and when you then receive this letter, the first thing you do is check to make sure the seal isn't broken, and then you check to see what the name is. In excavations in the city of David, archaeologists have uncovered these small seals, the size of a thumbnail, with names straight out of the Bible, names like the biblical Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, direct descendant of King David. I mean, you're talking about names of figures in the right historical context, straight out of the pages in the Bible. It's real. You could see it. You could touch it, which makes it all the more laughable when the United Nations and others are going and denying this heritage. And I think it's also one of the reasons why this administration, when they released their deal of the century uh, for their vision for peace in this region, they acknowledged that Jerusalem is going to remain the undivided capital of Israel, guaranteeing the freedom of worship and protection of all the holy places. But it was understood from the perspective of America that the only way to ensure that this heritage is preserved, and not just the heritage of, of, of Jerusalem and the Jewish people in Israel, but the heritage that matters so much to America and to 
countless millions of Americans to ensure that that heritage is protected and made accessible to people of all faiths and backgrounds. The only way that happens in this region is if Israel is sovereign in Jerusalem. And, and that's what really we're trying to do here is to make that heritage as accessible to as many people uh, as possible and to push back against those, whether at the United Nations or in the Palestinian leadership, who are trying to erase that heritage and, and literally to erase it, whether through the physical destruction of antiquities, uh, as was the case up on the Temple Mount, uh, where not long ago the religious, the Islamic religious trust destroyed 400 truckloads of antiquities on the Temple Mount and dumped it in the garbage dump, uh, or just to erase it from the history books. You have physical destruction of Jerusalem's history and heritage, and you also have the rewriting of that heritage in bodies like the United Nations and elsewhere. And the city of David is, is really at the forefront of ensuring that the physical heritage is going to be protected and preserved and made sure that it's open to everyone and also to make sure that the actual heritage, the story, right. our so shared story how, how of is, Jerusalem is, is open. What is the United Nations doing exactly? Because that, that's pretty, it, it, you expect it from Palestinian leadership. That's not all that surprising. But to, but to hear that the United Nations is actively um, trying to thwart these efforts, what exactly are they doing and, and, and how, how could they possibly advocate against the, the clear evidence. I mean, you, you, you've talked about some evidence just during this podcast, but there's obviously a lot more. I remember you showing me uh, actual coins, um, shekels from, from that time period. So there's, there's obviously mounting mm-hmm. evidence. Um, you guys have all presentations on this uh, that, that every, everybody can have access to about all the, the amazing archaeological discoveries and, and just a written history that's been discovered in this area. So like the, 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 I guess the the evidence that there is a a Jewish and Christian connection to this area and that the the stories of the Bible are are, are real um, is overwhelming at this point. So, what is the UN's argument? It, it, elaborate on that for me a little bit. Right, I'm just going to pause for one second. I'm going to answer that question, but we're about to have our moment of silence. Okay, so go ahead, and I'll I'll explain to listeners what that answer. is. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Okay, sorry about that. So for everybody listening uh, in Israel right now, it is their Memorial Day. And um, on their Memorial Day, they actually uh, pause for a moment of silence to honor the fallen. Uh, hence, hence that abrupt um, pause uh, in the podcast. So you were, you were, you were listening in real time and, and to real world events going on. All right. Zev is back. Um, yeah. So, Picking up where we left off, um, yeah. What 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 is the UN doing here? What, why 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 do we keep hearing uh, such an anti-Israel sen- sentiment in general uh, from the UN? Well, well the, the UN is not just one entity. The UN obviously is made up of of countries around the world, and there are more than fifty Muslim states in the world. There is only one Jewish state in the world and already, you know, putting it like that, it doesn't lead to, uh, uh, great circumstances in the United Nations. And then you throw into that all sorts of political interests and economic interests and other interests that, that various countries around the world have. And that does not work in Israel's favor, uh, in a body like the United Nations. And really it's, it's more than just about Israel. You look at the United Nations human rights council, where you have some of the worst human rights violators sitting on, those bodies. Uh, it, it's not surprising. The United Nations, sadly, uh, its mission and mandate 
is uh, an admirable one, but in practice it is generally most of the time not lived up to uh, its calling, and that can be seen no more better case than as it relates to Israel. Uh, and specifically, what you have in a body like UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, its mandate is to protect and preserve the cultural heritage of humanity, which is a very important mandate, and therefore you would expect when it passes resolutions on a place like Jerusalem, that it would highlight the significance of Jerusalem. Yes, to Islam, from the perspective that, that Muslims feel a deep connection to Jerusalem, but all the more so to Christians and, and to Jews who have been there for thousands of years, and yet that is the very thing that's being erased. And why? Because the story that many in the Islamic world, and certainly in Palestinian society, uh, that's been told, and even in, in more and more parts of Europe today, is that Israel is a colonial project, that Israel has no legitimate historic ties to the region, to the Middle East in particular, to Israel and Jerusalem specifically, and therefore you can't, at UNESCO, acknowledge the fact that, wait a minute, Jews and by extension Christians have been in Jerusalem for thousands of years because that undermines then the whole story. Then it becomes clear that the emperor is naked, and so they pass these ridiculous resolutions that, even small children uh, with a basic uh, understanding of history would know is not true. But I'll tell you something more than that. I've, I've had the good fortune, you could say, to guide dozens and dozens of United Nations ambassadors, both from the United Nations as a whole and from UNESCO specifically. And not one of them has ever said when they came through the city of David like you did, oh, this is BS, this is lies, this is not true. They're all moved, visibly moved. And so the question is, what's going on? How could it be that they're coming to the city of David? They see with their own eyes the history, and yet they deny it, and they're voting. And the answer is very sim simple, and it's an anecdote that goes back to 2016. 2016, when the first of these, this series of resolutions was, was being voted on at UNESCO, the Mexican ambassador to UNESCO uh, reached out to his equivalent of the State Department and said, all right, these are the votes coming up over the course of this week. What are my instructions? And he tells them about the vote on Jerusalem. And they say, we're going to support this vote. Now, Mexico is a very Christian, a Catholic country. And he says, excuse, maybe I didn't hear correctly. We're going to support this vote that denies the Jewish and Christian heritage in Jerusalem. And they said, yeah, that's what, we're going to support it. And he said, but it's not true. Well, okay, well, why should that matter? We're going to support it. And then when the vote came up, and the Mexican ambassador did not follow the orders that he was given from, from his foreign office, you know what he was doing the next day? He was looking for a job, right? And so all the other ambassadors look around, and they're like, all right, we like being ambassadors. We like living in New York City. We like having drivers and nice apartments and all the perks that go along with the position. We're not going to fall on our sword over, over debating Jerusalem's history from thousands of years ago. But wait, why, and, why, and why so, was the Mexican uh, State Department I, I'm, I can't even figure out why they were why they were against it. So what was what was going on behind the scenes there? I mean, the, the behind the scenes is very simple. You have even some of the United States' closest allies in Europe. They support these resolutions for the, for a very simple reason. When they do the political calculus uh, in terms of whether to support or to oppose resolutions like this, it works out in the favor of we're going to support again politically, economically. They have more to gain by supporting the resolutions than they do by opposing it. I'm just trying to figure Israel's out what the gain is, though. Pride. Practically speaking, I, 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 what, what could possibly be the gain? I, I'm still sorry, I'm still not clear on that. 
I mean, I think it comes down to a, a lot of different things. One is to overall have good ties with the Islamic world, to have good political relations, to have good uh, economic relations. I mean, you would think, why is it controversial uh, for the United States to recognize that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel? I mean, why wouldn't the United States recognize that? But when they did that, I mean, the, the Palestinians, they're still not talking to the U.S. administration today because of that. And so many other countries, they don't have the courage to do what the United States did, which is to say, well, of course, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. I mean, everyone knows these things, but, but they're not willing to publicly come out on the record because of the potential backlash that they're afraid of. Now, what's interesting is when the United States moved their embassy to Jerusalem, uh, there were many, even in the State Department, who were saying, no, no, it's a bad idea. It's going to lead to all sorts of conflict and violence. And in the end, nothing really happened. And so I think that there is a sense that there's a lot of fear of the reaction of the Muslim street, of the Arab street, and what that could mean for various countries. Uh, yeah, the end of the day, uh, yeah, I guess you're right. And it's just so ridiculous. You know, like you can't just stand up for what is so basically true. Um, and, and, you know, this is sort of, in a sense, it's a little bit of political correctness run amok. I mean, it's not quite a conversation about political correctness. It's more, I'm not even sure what to call it, but in, in any case, it's, it's a fear of, of standing up for the truth and, uh, really for no good reason that it, it, it is really sad. I'm proud to proud, proud that America has actually stood up for this truth. And it doesn't, it doesn't step on anybody's toes either. There, there's no, there should be no fear that that this truth gets revealed, right? It doesn't. It doesn't hurt in no way or shape or form. Should this hurt uh, the Palestinian cause or the Palestinian people? That's that you know to, to suggest so. I think would be ridiculous. But but as you noted, that that is the reaction that that, that sort of happens. Yeah, I mean, the only reason it, it hurts them is because the story that they've been telling for about a century is that. Jews have never been here. And therefore, when we pull something out of the ground, which shows clearly otherwise, well, then, yeah, it's a problem. When we uncover the pilgrimage road that says, wait a minute, 2,000 years ago, uh, there were Jews going up to a temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Well, then it's a problem. Whereas if they would just say, like, okay, well, we want this land. We think it belongs to us. Okay, yeah, we get that you also have a history here, and now we have a conflict and we need to work it out. Okay, and there you'll then have political debates and, and resolutions and whatever ends up happening. But when one side says, we do not recognize your existence, it's in a certain sense, to quote a friend of mine, it's national identity theft, where what the Palestinians are trying to do is to steal our heritage, not just our land, but our heritage, and to say, you were never here. And the you, again, is very important because it's not you, meaning just me, Zev Ornstein, or the Jewish people or Israelis. If, if I don't have a history in Jerusalem, if the Jewish people don't have a history in Jerusalem, then you as Americans, you as people who, who believe in the Judeo-Christian heritage, then you don't have, your heritage also isn't true. Because if the biblical heritage of Jerusalem, if it's not true for the Jews, well, then it's not true for the Christians either. If it's not true for Israel, then it's not true for America. And right. that's why when I meet with people like yourselves in the city of David, I say, this is not a, a, a pro-Israel issue. This is a pro-America issue, because this is your heritage. This is like Gettysburg or, or Valley Forge or Plymouth Rock, just 6,000 miles away. And when someone tries to undermine that heritage, they're trying to take away your heritage, too, not just mine. 
Yeah. No, and it's just so disappointing. I mean, in the coronavirus era, our international institutions have uh, been discredited widely. The World Health Organization being among them. The UN has lost standing in enormous ways for, for, for reasons like this. UNESCO and the Human Rights Council just being so blatantly and obviously corrupted from the core. And um, it's 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 a real shift, I think, in global politics. And, you know, that's a... That's that's a that's a conversation for another time. These are important institutions, especially as as, as institutions for countries to go and to speak to each other. Um, but as institutions of any authority, I think they've got a long way to go to gain any credibility. Um, Zev, that's uh, I think that about sums it all up. Is there anything uh, else we didn't talk about that you'd want to add? Um, it's a fascinating discussion on the, on the importance of the city of David. I don't think a lot of people realize what's going on with that right now and, and how recent this discovery is and how amazing it is for, uh, for humanity, really. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'll just say, come see it for yourself. Don't take my word for it alone. Uh, you could come, you could see it, you could walk through the excavations, you could walk along the pilgrimage road, see it with your own eyes, touch it with your own hands, uh, walk on it with your own feet, and, and it's it's your heritage too, and, and don't let anyone take it away from you. It's a great, great message to leave with, and uh, thanks so much, Jeff, for being on the podcast. It was a really fascinating discussion. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show so we had a fabulous show today, with first with Rabbi Mike Foyer, and now the second half with uh, Dan Crenshaw and Zev Ornstein. I'm curious to know what you think about it all. I am curious to know how you understood it, how you, wh- what your reaction was. So write me an email, yishai at thelandofisrael.com, yishai at thelandofisrael.com, or yishai at yishaifleischer.com. Check out my website, yishaifleischer.com, uh, and uh, don't be shy. Uh, hit the donate button and... Uh, Throw a few um, a few cents our way because it makes a big difference. Your help makes a big difference in continuing to create and promote these products and to help uh, pay the good folks uh, that that make this show possible. Um, and that's really really great. And also, you know, like hosting and all that other stuff. Everything costs money. And so, if you appreciate the show, well, we appreciate your help as well. Uh, but more than that, I hope that you are plugged in during this period into the story of Israel into the story of Torah, into the story uh, of the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, as was promised by God 3,800 years ago to Abraham and 2,000 years ago when we were exiled from this land uh, and uh, the promise to return. That's happening in our days, in our time. There could be no more exciting period than this time that we're living in. Uh, it was great to speak to Rabbi Mike Foyer about the blasphemer and Second Pesach. I hope that you take out your matzah and your wine for Second, second Pesach and really enjoy it and make it into a holiday. The holiday of those people who want to get closer to God who say, I want more. And uh, also, the blasphemer, we learn a lot about really being thankful for what we have and what God has given us and to thank him instead of, instead of cursing him, uh, God forbid. And also, I think we learned a lot from Dan Crenshaw about what a great, what a great thing it is to be a congressman and to use that position to make a podcast and to talk to the people and to really show how you're thinking and to Zev Ornstein who did such a, such a wonderful job uh, of explaining the story of Israel, of explaining the story of ancient Jerusalem, of connecting it to people that come from a different background. Uh, all of us come from different backgrounds. We all come from our subjective point of view 
And that's why one of the most important things is to have love and empathy for one another. And I want to send out a lot of love to you from the land of blessings. Uh, a lot of blessings and a lot of love uh, from myself, from my family, from Judea, from Hebron, uh, where you can visit the Tomb of the Fathers and Mothers by visiting hebronfund.org. Uh, to the folks that make Tchelet, T-E-K-H-E-L-E-T, that's the blue string that lights up our life. It reminds us of the water and of the heavens and of the seat in heavens of God's glory. That's Tchelet. Try it on. You'll never go back. Once you go blue, you never go back. <laughs> that's my new slogan. And once you go blue, you never go back. Uh, and all of our friends, including folks at the Jewish Press, uh, jewishpress.com, and also jns.org, Great folks that uh, put out a lot of content to teach you what's going on in the land of Israel, share with you what's going on in, in Jewish news and in the land of Israel. Lots of love to you. I also want to thank uh, Moshe Herman, Tabitha, and Ben Bresky for rocking the net waves and getting the show out to the world. Lots of love to you guys. And really, I mean it. I'd love to hear from you. Um, and just stay connected with me. Stay connected, of course, to the land of Israel, the dwelling place of the God of Israel. Is master of the world and it's broadcasting 24-7. All you have to do is tune in. God bless you. Shabbat Shalom and Shalom. This is Eve Harrow for the Land of Israel Network. You can start every week with me hearing views and interviews with fascinating people, some well-known, others homegrown, about places I guide, ideas I have to get you thinking too. It's about the land. It's about my people. It's about our collective journey. Rejuvenation with Eve Harrow, Sundays on the Land of Israel Network. Listen in. Share the ride.